Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for uh, coming to us and, and showing us uh, the love of the Father and um, showing us your love for us. And uh, thank you that in leaving us, you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent your Holy Spirit to live with us, uh, to strengthen us and to guide us through this life, that we might be found in you in the end. Uh, we pray that, um, Holy Spirit, you would open our, our ears and our eyes in this moment to, to see and to, to hear uh, what is true, to hear the gospel, and that you would stir the affections of our hearts that we might uh, more fully uh, love and obey um, Jesus Christ from, from a true heart of love. We pray that um, the words of my mouth, we pray that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm going to go off script here a little bit this morning. It's very unpresbyterian to me. I'll be speaking in tongues next. Um, but... Um, no, we had our, our new member class this morning, and you know, one of the things that I, I've, I've repeated um, to, to set people at ease is um, that in becoming a member of the church, uh, you all do not have to check every Presbyterian box, right? Um, we are not uh, having you sign in blood that you are a, a, a thoroughbred Presbyterian, right? And that means that there's going to be a spectrum of, of belief represented here, right, in the body, in your hearts and in your minds. And um, there's going to be variation of belief. The reason why I say that is because we're baptizing a baby this morning, right? And, and many of you come from uh, traditions. I myself grew up Baptist, right? Many of you come for tr from traditions in which that wasn't the practice, right? And so... Um, this morning is kind of um, an explanation as to why we do this thing, right? Um, I'm not saying, I'm not up here saying, you have to believe this. Um, but I'm encouraging you to do so by providing my explanation as to why it is we baptize uh, babies uh, and, um, and what is the practice of baptism. So, uh, having said that, I will go back to my script and we'll begin. Uh, James Cook, where is he? Trisha Posey and Brandy Cowell. <laughs> James Cook got applause. <laughs> James Cook and Trisha Posey and Brandy Cowell will be glad to hear this. The God of the Bible respects history, right? Although, amen, we are turning into a Pentecostal church this morning. Although God himself does not experience time as we do, for our sake, he works within the confines of time and space and cultures and communities to accomplish his purposes. He works within history. And our Bible reflects this reality. The Bible did not descend from heaven as a completed document like the golden tablets that were translated into the Book of Mormon. Instead, the Bible reflects the, the different worlds and the different cultures in, in which it was written over the course of centuries, right? It was a divinely guided process that included multiple people, and the evidence that, of that can be found in the pages of this holy book that we have inherited. It was a messy process. But history is messy, 
and God insists on working within history. And this commitment to history is also evident within the stories of the Bible. In fact, in, in Genesis 3, at the beginning, God tells us the ending. And the story doesn't stop there. The end is still a long way off in the future. There's a lot of time in between the beginning and the end. We are still living in that time. But God tells us the end at the beginning so that we can experience the course of history in order to find uh, Christ there. We can use the course of history in order to find God revealing himself to humanity. Unconcerned with how the story is going to end, we are able to attend to God in the pages of history and learn of his character. It's been a while since I mentioned Anthony Trollope in a sermon, and now seems like the perfect time to return to a quote that I've, I've uh, read for you before. Trollope is a favorite of, of Pauline and me. And uh, he writes novels, and he wrote novels in the Victorian period, and yet his, his writing feels almost modern. He, he often interrupts his own story with unrelated, often unnecessary, but always quite funny narration. He's a joy to read. And in his book, uh, Barchester Towers, Trollope writes a story that focuses on who will marry the widow Eleanor Bowles. The two contenders for her hand are the Weasley chaplain, Mr. Slope, and the spendthrift idle bachelor, Bertie Stanhope. And in stories like this, you usually have to wait until the last chapter to find out who wins this war of love. But Trollope doesn't play that game. He does the craziest thing with his story. The book, at least the version we have, is 511 pages long. But on page 137, Trollope tells you the end. He comes right out, and he tells you the end in the middle of the story. Here's, here's what he says. Let the gentle-hearted reader be under no apprehension whatsoever. It is not destined to Eleanor that she shall marry Mr. Slope or Bertie Stanhope. <laughs> he cuts all suspense and all anxiety about how the story is going to end out of his novel. But why? Well, he goes on to explain himself. He writes, our doctrine is that the author and the reader should move along together in full confidence with each other. Let the personages of the drama undergo ever so complete a comedy of errors among themselves, but let the spectator never be one of the dupes, for the part of the dupe is never dignified. What is Trollope saying? He's saying that when an author lets a reader in on the ending in the middle of the story, that author is inviting the reader into a privileged position where the two of them can enjoy the story together. They can enjoy history. In this setup, the author is not arranging things in such a way so as to torment the reader, making the blood pressure rise, the palms sweat, the guessing about an ending abound, treating the reader as a dupe, but is rather treating the reader with dignity as a partner invited into the full joy of the story because they already know the ending. The reader can more fully attend to the unfolding story before them because they don't have to be concerned with uncovering a mysterious end. And this is how God, the author of life and the story of salvation, treats his children. God does not treat his children like dupes, but with dignity. 
He tells us the ending at the beginning so that we might be able to fully attend to him within the pages of history. In the daily moments of life, we may, to borrow Trollope's language, move along together with God in full confidence with each other. We know the end, so we are free to attend God in the pages of history. But Genesis 3 isn't the only place in which God explicitly tells us the ending. Throughout history, God has confirmed and clarified and focused his vision and plan for the end of time. We do not have one fairly vague promise from Genesis 3 to cling to alone, but several promises sprinkled throughout history to remind and assure us of the ending. For instance, after the flood in which God judged humanity, he made a promise never to do that again. The heart of humanity wasn't transformed by the flood. We were only judged for our sin. Therefore, the possibility of future judgment was real since humanity had been preserved in the ark. The promise of God to never flood the earth again was necessary to set our minds at ease. We needed to hear those words. Our guilt had been preserved. But with God's promise in hand, we do not need to fear annihilation. That's not how the story is going to end. And to strengthen his promise, God accompanied it with a sign, a rainbow. Although made of light particles, it resembled a a bow that a person might use to hunt, and it was aimed into heaven. And this bow would appear after it rained in order to remind and assure us that God would rather die for humanity than let us be wiped out for our sin ever again. He would rather the bow be fired into the heavens than to drown us in judgment. Near the beginning of our story, God let us know that grace would triumph over sin in the end. He used a promise and an accompanying sign to make that known. And in Abraham, we see him do the same. He makes a promise to Abraham, and he designates circumcision as a sign to accompany his promise. In this promise, articulated in Genesis 17, God clarifies how he's going to work within history. What will be his vehicle within history to accomplish his promised victory of grace? He is going to work through a family. He will turn them into a nation that he himself will defend and strengthen. He will be their God and they will be his people. And through that nation, God will then bring salvation to the world. But it all starts with a man and a woman and their child. And it's in this natural environment of a family that God is going to redeem all of humanity. And so he makes promises to Abraham and to Sarah regarding themselves, but also regarding the thing that they care most about in the world, their children. Look, in verse 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God makes promises to those who are near, to those who are far off, to those who are alive, and to those who are yet to be born. His promises extend even to the womb. And the sign that accompanies this promise likewise extends to not just Abraham, but to every son born to him whether Ishmael or Isaac. God tells Abraham in verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
Also, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations. And then he goes on to exhaust all the, the possible exceptions to this rule. Well, what if they're foreigners and not Hebrews by birth? By birth? Circumcise them. Uh, what if they aren't family and they're just, they're just living under my roof? Circumcise them. What if they only work for us? Circumcise them. The sign of the covenant is, is liberally distributed to anyone within Abraham's household. The bodies of all people are to be marked as the recipients of God's divine promises. The son of Sarah, circumcise him. The son of Hagar, circumcise him too. Circumcision marked God's people as his own. And it communicated God's intention to perform surgery in a secret place. The problem in the flood was that the people's hearts were not transformed by that event. But in circumcision, God communicates his intention to fix that problem. He will transform their hearts. He will cut away all that is unnecessary and will change them. The sign, therefore, points to the thing it signifies. A circumcised body points to a circumcised heart. But the sign is also the means by which God works. That is the nature of a sacrament. In the physical removal of a foreskin, God circumcised the heart. The two are simultaneous, the, th the sign and the thing signified. This is why in verse 10, God tells Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. The circumcision was not just the sign of the covenant, but the content of the covenant. Again, in verse 13, God says to Abraham that my covenant shall be in your flesh as an everlasting co covenant. And in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The circumcision of the flesh and the reality of belonging to God and to his people are spoken of as one in Genesis 17. It was through the sacramental act of circumcision that God fulfilled his covenant promises to Abraham and to his household. This is not to say that Abraham was the one in charge, as if by cutting off a person's foreskin, he was able to ensure anyone's membership in God's family. If that's the case, don't fall asleep around Abraham. He did not possess power over God to force him to adopt anyone. Circumcision was a gift that God gave to Abraham. It was intended to assure Abraham of God's favor and to fill Abraham with confidence should he ever feel his sin had grown too great. In moments of guilt, he had only to look at his body to be reminded of the work that God has done within him. And at the same time that circumcision offered assurance, it also called Abraham into penitence and holiness. On his body was a mark that set him apart from his pagan neighbors. He saw it every day, and it called him to be different. There were no doubt people within Israel, people even within Abraham's own family, who were circumcised in their bodies but not in their hearts. Removing the foreskin was not a guarantee that the Spirit would likewise operate on the heart. 
But for those who through an abiding and obedient faith did prove their membership in the family of God, their circumcision was for them an assurance, a comfort, and a continual call to remain in the faith. They could look back at their circumcision on the eighth day of life and know that to be the moment of their adoption into the family of God. When their foreskin was removed, their heart was likewise transformed, and the evidence is the faith that developed in them in time and persevered within them. In the promises and signs given to Abraham, God was revealing how he was going to redeem the world. He was going to work through Abraham's family and the nation of Israel born to him by transforming their hearts like the removal of flesh that happens in the act of circumcision. From this one man and woman and their child, God was going to save the world. In Genesis 17, God clarifies his plan for the future. He clarifies the ending. And the rest of the Old Testament is a story of God's commitment to Abraham's family. He starts by giving this old barren couple a child, And he then increases their number even further and turns that family into a nation. He gives them land and he blesses them with wealth and security and wisdom. The great King Solomon sits atop the apex of Israel's history, even as he sat atop a golden throne where kings and queens from around the world visited him to witness his fame. It appeared that God was increasing Israel's reach in order to fulfill his plan to transform the world. But at the apex of Israel's history and at the height of his own fame, Solomon went astray in his heart. He did not influence the hearts of the world, but instead he was influenced by them. As he wandered from God, he led God's people astray into the worship of other gods, false gods. And the plan for Israel seemed to fall apart as they became divided and were eventually driven into exile. All the promises seemed to be coming undone. God appeared to have abandoned his people and his redemption project through them. That is, until a child was born to an insignificant Hebrew couple in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. If you were to trace his his genealogy as Matthew and Luke do, you would discover he was a child of Abraham, a son of David. More importantly, though, this child was the son of God. He was born of the Virgin Mary who conceived under the power of the Holy Spirit. His heart would never go astray. Here was a man through whom God could accomplish his pre-announced plan for the future. Here was a child of Israel who could fulfill God's intentions for that nation born from Abraham's and Sarah's bodies. This child was, of course, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, God was going to bring salvation to the world. His mission was to die in the place of sinners, a sacrifice on behalf of the world so that through him, sinners might receive forgiveness and experience the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. In Acts 2, Peter describes this work of God. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus was crucified by sinners only to be raised up and enthroned in the heavenly places, ready to rule over the nations and in the hearts of those who come to him 
for a, who come to him for a grace greater than our sin. When Peter's audience heard of this development within God's story of redemption, the text tells us that they were cut to the heart. And they said to the apostles, what must we do to be saved? And to this inquiry, Peter responded, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He then goes on and he states that this promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. The promise in and through Jesus Christ is the salvation of your souls, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the promise extends to the womb, just like it did for Abraham and Sarah. It's for you, your children, and for those who are yet to be born. And as is his practice, God has assigned a sign to this promise, and that sign is baptism. It is to be applied in the same way as circumcision. Only now the sign includes women, not just men. Jesus Christ expanded the sign just as he expanded the promise. In Jesus, we are promised not a physical home, but a a spiritual home which can never be taken from us. In Jesus, the promise is delivered to Jews and Gentiles, to men and women. He expands the promise and the accompanying sign, and infants and children are still included. The Scottish theologian John Murray writes, The gospel dispensation is the unfolding of the covenant made with Abraham. The extension and the enlargement of the blessing conveyed by this covenant to the people of the Old Testament period. And he then asks, if children born of the faithful were given the sign and seal of the covenant, and therefore of the richest blessing which the covenant disclosed, if the New Testament economy is the elaboration and extension of this covenant of which circumcision was the sign, are we to believe that infants in this age are excluded from that which was provided by the Abrahamic covenant? What Murray is saying is that if children were included in the promise made to Abraham, Why would they suddenly be excluded in the promises made in Jesus, especially when in every other way Jesus expands the promises and the recipients of them? Baptism, then, is the sign that marks men, women, and children off as belonging to God and belonging to his promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is also the means by which God works to make this happen, Not everyone who is baptized will prove to be a part of God's family in time, but for those who prove their membership in God's family through enduring faith and obedience, their baptism is a comfort, an assurance, a constant call to remain in the faith. In just a little while, we're going to baptize Kiriana Cook, just like we baptized her big brother Silas. And our prayer for her is that one day she will look back on this day as the day that God redeemed her, the day he began to claim her as his own, the day he washed her clean from her sin. Our prayer is that this day would be a constant comfort for her, an assurance of God's abiding love for her, and a tool she can use in her efforts to follow Jesus. 
When Martin Luther, the, the reformer, Martin Luther experienced temptation to wander from Christ into sin, he was known to pound the table and to shout out loud, I am a baptized Christian. He was reminding himself of this fact. He was rebuking Satan with this fact. He was speaking as God, calling himself into obedience. These waters are useful to us. Though they have dried from your bodies long ago, still these waters speak to you. In these waters, God tells you he's been with you since the beginning. In these waters, God reminds you that his salvation is by grace. You have no recollection of that moment. He washes you when we are filthy. He does not wait for us to clean ourselves up first. And now these waters call us still to this day into future obedience. May you hear the voice of Christ speaking to you in these waters this morning. And in these waters, may our God and Father adopt Kiriana into our family. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.